there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Fleetwood stopped believing and filed for bankruptcy, and the U.S. government reached an out-of-court settlement in a contentious lawsuit over the use of Agent Orange in Vietnam, and they want you to believe those two things are not related. The USSR officially pulled out of the Summer Olympics, set for Los Angeles, and Nelson Mandela, still in prison in South Africa, was allowed to see his wife for the first time in 22 years. In two more events the government wants you to believe weren't related, Ronald Reagan announced that the U.S. would not become involved in the Iran-Iraq war in any significant military fashion. And Prince released When Doves Cry. You do the math while we run down the movies of May 1984. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWinney, and welcome to 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Scott, what's up, man? Hello, Drew. Welcome, everyone, to 80s All Over, which is when we talk about softcore porn repeatedly. <laughs> but only eight films. So this is where I feel like the 80s is still kind of, May is that sleepy month where about half of it is a big summer month and about half of it is what the hell are these movies? The idea of May being part of the summer movie season is a relatively new phenomenon. I think it was probably like Stephen Summers' The Mummy probably put the foot on uh, May is now part of the summer movie season. Yeah, it feels like this month is all revving up, and then right at the end of the month, boom, we get a couple of really big titles that are sort of the precursor for next month, which is crazy. Um, I am excited about uh, some of the weirdness of this month, and it certainly starts with an odd little movie, man. Scott, how would you describe Neil Jordan's debut feature, Angel, a.k.a. Danny Boy? I was psyched for this because I've seen most of Neil Jordan's movies, and you can see a lot of what Neil Jordan's visual signature style became. Danny Boy has some fantastic, moody, darkly lit visuals, but its plot, uh, which is about a musician who witnesses a double murder and then goes on a very mm, kind of dry death wish very casual rampage. Yeah, casual rampage would have been a good <laughs> title for this film. It is certainly not bad, but 
it it doesn't have um, for a short, it's only about eighty five minutes. It doesn't have a lot of energy for such a simple movie. Uh, a lot of the ideas that Neil Jordan is interested in, and a lot of the things that he'll play with over the course of his career, are already sort of in place here. Starting with the casting of Stephen Rea as the the lead, and and I think he's really good here. The issue I have with it is that he's kept at a simmer the entire time, and I feel like the movie needs to at some point kind of. The pulse needs to kick in. This came about because John Borman uh, shot Excalibur in Ireland and Neil Jordan got a job working on that. And Borman recognized that this guy was a a filmmaker and he knew that there was going to be a voice coming out of this kid. So he helped him get this film set up and I think really helped him get his legs under him in the industry. Chris Menges shot this. It is a early film for him as well. And you can see all the tools that these guys are going to end up using over the course of their career in a very dry, dry run. Now we move over to Drew McWeeny for Michael Radford's Another Time, Another Place. He is guilty of association with a civilian female. And that is a military offense. I would say that the most shocking thing about this is that it is not a remake of the Sean Connery melodrama with Lana Turner, which I assumed it was the entire time I prepared to watch this and then was startled and confused when it turned out to have nothing to do with it. A young housewife has an affair with an Italian prisoner of war who is working her farm, and it is very much a melodrama. It is engaging, but not really my cup of tea genre-wise. They get paid to keep the prisoners of war on their farm and put them to work as opposed to putting them in a prison somewhere or building camps or anything. It also kind of helped people that were struggling because of the war to put a little extra money in their pocket. And so the housewife is much, much younger than her husband. Uh, It's like a 20-year difference. And there's very little spark between them to begin with. So when these three Italians are put in the house, there's this connection that she ends up having with one of them All of that sounds fine, except in a 90-minute movie, it takes a little over an hour before they connect, really. And that's a long time. It's not terribly riveting. It's not terribly compelling. This was a uh, a first film for Michael Radford, best known for uh, The Postman. And it is most notable as the first film shot by Roger Deakins. Uh, It's funny you'd mention that, because if you had said at the end, do you realize this was the first feature by Roger Deakins? I would have said, wait, what? Really? It's obviously not shot poorly, but it lacks a certain style. We're going to actually do another Michael Radford, Roger Deakins film later this year, which is uh, aptly titled, and I'm looking forward to getting that one. It's going to be a good conversation. Ah, now, Drew, finally, finally. I'm so excited. I know, I know. You've been thrilled about this one for weeks. Griffin Dunn in Cold Feet. I, Drew, I couldn't, I, this one's all you. I pride myself on being able to find anything. I could not find Cold Feet. This one's all you. Dude, it, you miss nothing. It's a very, very, very low budget, super, super, super New York take on the romantic comedy. It's not quite as bad as Can You Bake a Cherry Pie. It is a different kind of mundane New York where everybody's in crappy apartments and crappy offices and it looks like everything was shot under a fluorescent bulb. 
Griffin Dunn, as much as I like him, and I really like Griffin Dunn, he's the most compelling thing in most of the movies he made in the 80s. Uh, even he can't save this. Uh, he is a prick. She studies social behavior. They try to have a relationship. No one gives a shit. That's my uh, summary of Cold Feet. Now, speaking of nobody giving a shit, <laughs> Drew, last month we talked about a totally disposable, unfunny sex comedy produced by Playboy called Preppies. In case you thought, well, maybe they just, you know, wanted to get something crappy out of their system. And now they have primed the pump. And now Playboy is prepared to deliver something decent. Fuck, it's time for hard bodies. Looking for an old-fashioned movie with good, clean fun? Then grow up and see this one instead. Hard bodies, the story of a boy. Does she know how crazy I'm about you? One special brunette. We're having you love with And several hundred bikinis. This could be my kind of beach. Hard bodies, rated R. It was too tame. For Playboy Channel, so say they sold it to Columbia. You know, this is part of that gold rush of spring break movies, and they're not quite the Porky's films. This is people descending on a vacation town and leaving all their morals and brains at the door. And that's what this genre is. And Mark Griffiths, who made this, we just talked about his debut, Running Hot, the movie with Eric Stoltz on the run. And I think Running Hot is 10 times the film Hard Bodies is, and I didn't think Running Hot was particularly good. To me, I always looked at this as the the final nail in the fun teen sex comedy, because Hard Bodies is about three middle-aged men who go to the beach and hire a hot young hunk to teach them how to hook up. Yeah, and it's him and his buddy, played by the, uh, the creepy red-haired kid from the Burbs and Children of the Corn, uh, who is meant to be appealing here and is really not. It's a movie about creeps teaching other creeps how to be different kinds of creeps. It's never funny. And and the overall tone is like, no matter how low Porky's or where the boys are or losing it or up the creek, the goal there, the point there is that these are young people sowing their oats. As obnoxious as it is, we could chalk a lot of this up to they're all under 20. Exactly. There is a difference between that and then the craven predatory nature of this movie. And clearly this guy, Mark Griffiths, if you look at the movies he made, was in this L.A. scene of I'm making movies that are mainly about bare boobs. And I'm guessing it's a fairly sleazy world to have worked in in that time period. And this one feels authentically grimy, which is part of what I dislike most about yeah, it. Yeah, and it, again, it has a lot to do with the fact that it's a grown adults talking to young adults or minors. Oh, there's nobody in the movie who's likable, except there is kind of a lead girl who is our hero's on-again, off-again girlfriend, and she's played by Teal Roberts. She is, of course, asked to undress numerous times. When she's given dialogue to deliver, she's actually kind of charming and likable. Kane Hodder appears very briefly as a giant nerd, and he was also the stunt coordinator for Hard Bodies. I'm glad that we've got a couple of years until we have to do the sequel because uh, it is a unpleasant bad film. Oh, oh, Drew, I did want to add one more note regarding Hard Bodies. Um, hold that because you may want to make that noise again as we discuss our next movie, which was oddly shot in Memphis, Tennessee, not the location for a lot of teen sex comedies, but at the very least it can claim that it is the home of making the grade. 
Farmer Woodrow is going to lose his inheritance unless he graduates from Hoover Prep. You will actually have to get a job. He hates school, <laughs> but he's got an idea. Pay some guy what? Five, six hundred bucks a month and a bonus to graduate. And where do you propose to find the idiot to do this? Making the Grade, the story of a rich kid who hires a street kid to finish school for him. Making the Grade, rated R. Starts Friday, May 18th. Check local listings. All right. Well, yeah, we mentioned making the grade briefly last episode uh, because it used to be it was originally titled The Last American Preppy. And then they got sued or potentially sued by Playboy, who got the rights to the word. And they won that battle, man. All those lawyer fees for the worst use of preppies in a film title. You know, some some battles are worth fighting. They really are. They really are. Now they own that brand forever. God bless them. They didn't fight. They wouldn't have the giant preppies cinematic universe that we love so much now. (laughs) Um, so making the grade was chosen by an, uh, a, a test screening audience member. There was a contest because the MGM didn't know what to call the movie. So there was a contest and this guy actually won this contest to call it making the grade. That is ridiculous. And more interesting than just about anything in the film. This is one of those movies that made the mistaken assumption that Judd Nelson is funny. Now I like Judd Nelson. I would never call Judd Nelson a funny actor. I'm going to I'm going to get controversial here. He is Robin Williams compared to Dana Olson. Oh, we're going to get to that. At least we got a little bit of Mr. Carlson, a.k.a. Gordon Jump, playing the befuddled Dean. And we did get to see a very formative and kind of bizarre performance from Andrew Dice Clay. This is it. This is the beginning of Dice. This is he is the Dice man in this movie. And the bully preppy, of course. We got to add a gong or something every time I mention Scott McGinnis, because I'm going to mention Scott McGinnis every single time. Horrible human being Dan Schneider makes his an appearance here. I want to announce our, our, a new Stanford Sherman. Oh, his name is Gene Quintano. So at this point, he had co-written or written Coming At you and Treasure of the Four Crowns. And he co-wrote Making the Grade. Remember that name, Gene Quintano. Not good. All right, Drew. I am now going to unleash you, and I want you to talk for 35 seconds uninterrupted about the performance by Dana Olson. If you were to ask a computer to design the most singularly unappealing white asshole 80s character possible, somebody who your eye literally couldn't look directly at but is forced to slide off of because of the film of slime that covers everything they say, Dana Olson is better than anything any computer could have come up with. He is every mediocre, untalented, uninteresting, unworthy white person who has ever been elevated simply because they were in the right place at the right time. He is Chevy Chase. If Chevy Chase had been born devoid of charisma, talent, or timing, it is unreal that he is the lead of any movie ever made. Dana Olson plays the rich preppy who is supposed to be so spoiled and so party driven that we can't help but find him appealing. He's so freewheeling. He's so cocksure. I love him, Drew. Don't you? And in the hands of an actor like maybe Chevy Chase properly directed or Tim Madison or somebody with a little charm and a little bit of warmth. Now, Dana Olson is a funny guy. We'll get to his other credits in a minute. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. 
as an actor, I really feel like he was either unprepared and somebody just said, we're paying you to be Bill Murray or Chevy Chase. Well, it's the beginning of that. It's where every white guy who had gone to college suddenly assumed he was Chevy Chase or Tim Matheson. And all you had to do was wear shorts and an unbuttoned button-down shirt and boat shoes, and you were the funniest person alive. Only that's not how it works. At this point, was already fairly well-known as a TV and as a screenwriter, right? Yeah. He, uh, he co-wrote Wacko and Going Berserk, two films we hate. But he also would go on to co-write The Burbs, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, and the highly underrated George of the Jungle, which I think is very funny. And I've actually met Dana, and Dana is a nice guy and a funny guy and clearly a smart guy. There is a brain working in there. But this was that moment where that persona had been entitled and had suddenly been empowered. And every guy was, in his head, funny when they did this shit. It's a real problem. The preppy kid hires a poor kid to go to prep school for him. And then the poor kid doesn't just have trouble. You'd think he would like the jokes would be he has trouble fitting in with all these stuffy rich kids. No, he acts like a complete moron. Judd Nelson is not funny. Well, and the snobs against the slobs formula only works if you clearly define the stakes. And if you create a situation where the, the snobs really are wrong. And that's not easy to do. It's not always an automatic thing. And especially because you can tell that so many of these filmmakers secretly want to be the snobs. There's a weird sort of envy in the way all of the uh, the money is shot in these movies and in the way the, the world of the rich is shot in these films. You can tell that's what they want. So the snobs versus the slobs doesn't feel honest. And it certainly doesn't feel earned. This school is not doing anything wrong. It's just being a school. And then this asshole shows up and is a nightmare to everybody about everything. There's a sequel tag on this movie. The other weirdest thing is the score is by Basil Polidorus, which is just crazy. That's like, seriously, it's like hiring a racehorse to pull a hot dog cart. But yes, the sequel tag is is interesting because there is a presumptuousness that we're going to like these characters enough to want to see them again. Forget about whether or not it made money. You failed at the mission of making me interested enough to ever care if these people do anything again together. The movie ends after 105 mirthless, god-awful minutes, and on the screen it says, Skippy and Mike will return in Tourista. A, no they won't. B, fuck you. Please don't threaten me. I sat through your movie. Don't threaten me. Drew, it's time for you to take me down to the Alphabet City. At 19, they gave Johnny the streets and everything on them. Tonight, they want it all back. Welcome to Alphabet City. If you're not on the way up, you're on the way out. Alphabet City, it heats up when the sun goes down. This is a movie that I went nuts trying to track down for a little while in the 80s because uh, it was directed by a guy named Amos Poe. Amos Poe is famous for uh, his work as sort of a documentarian in the punk scene in the 70s. And man, he got some great stuff in, in a documentary that he made called The Blank Generation. I was excited that he had made a narrative feature and I spent a long time trying to track it down. And when I did finally see it, a little shock because it in no way feels like it comes from a bold 
edgy punk documentary. It's a pretty standard crime melodrama set in New York. I, this is something about it just kind of didn't click with me for the first 20 minutes. I didn't like it. I, and I was like, Ugh, there's just, just it slowly started to win me over. It's about uh, Vincent Spano plays a low level drug dealer. He's told that he has to burn down the apartment building in which his mother and his sister live. It takes place all in one night. And it's him bouncing back and forth between all these drug addicts and customers and, and troublemakers and kingpins. And I got into it. I think it's a fine little movie. It does a nice job of showing you a, this is his New York. Like uh, this character, Johnny, is he's kind of moving through the night and he has to go collect money and he has to go, you know, check in on people and he has to go deal with the guy that he works for. It's a lot like a quest game. Like he has to get the paperwork and the guy who he, get, he hands the paperwork to a guy to get a key. Then he gets the guy who hands him the key, gives him a gun. <laughs> and I like the stops along the way. I think there's some some interesting stops. There's some stuff I don't like about the movie at all. I think Michael Winslow's awful in this. And it, to me, really reveals the problem when you're a gimmick performer, when your whole thing is based on this one thing you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is a I fairly agree. serious I, movie. No, I agree. He plays uh, arguably the part that like uh, Chris Rock would later play in New Jack City. Drug dealer. But he's introduced by doing six minutes of machine gun noises, which I could live without. Well, on what, I mean, let's be fair. He's a stand-up comic with a gimmick who people like the gimmick enough to throw him in movies. If Amos Poe wants to point his camera at Michael Winslow for five minutes straight, that's on the director. I agree. And I'm saying I think it's a really bad job. This is the limitation of Michael Winslow as an actor is you're going to get the same thing in every movie. And it's always going to have to incorporate. I'm going to open the refrigerator. What does your refrigerator do? That's weird. That's a weird Uh, sound. You should get that fixed. Uh, You know what else you should always get fixed, Drew? What? Your dwarfs. Because you don't want your dwarfs to uh, procreate because then you'll have to deal with something called. Dance of the Dwarfs. Wow. Did you sprain something making a transition? <laughs> Meet Harry Bedecker, president of Transexec Airlines. Meet Dr. Evelyn Howard. Fasten your goddamn seatbelt. A lady used to traveling first class. Welcome aboard as they embark on an action-packed adventure. Get your hands off me! The dark is getting what you really are. Peter Fonda and Deborah Raffin star again. <laughs> Dance of the Dwarves. This is an impossible movie to transition to, though. Yeah, so. Dance of the Dwarves, a.k.a. Jungle Heat. A.k.a. Easy Flyer. Oh, my good God almighty. What? It feels like somebody took the screenplay for Romancing the Stone, Xeroxed it a thousand times, and then the, the last copy... That's what this screenplay is. No, no, no. This feels like somebody saw Romancing the Stone at a screening at 3 a.m. while they were high and drunk. And then the next day was telling their buddy what it was about. And this is what he told him because that person's a madman. Yeah, this is the whisper down the lane version of Romancing the Stone. Only the lane is 14,000 <laughs> people long. Um, it's it's Peter Fonda and Deborah Raffin exhibiting almost animosity as if they didn't like each other. They're on a jungle adventure. John Amos as a tribal chief. Ooh, a little unpleasant there. Oh, it's rough. It's rough. It's got an atrocious screenplay that breaks out words like accurized. She says, you better get your gun accurized. Their banter is terrible. Dude, he tells her, don't drink that. That's 240 proof. Yeah, all right, audience. 
think about that. I'm handing you something that is literally 120% alcohol. <laughs> what? <laughs> and then they discover a tribe of creatures that look like your seven-year-old next-door neighbor covered in cardboard boxes. If I had been in any way involved with the monsters in this movie, I would make sure there was no evidence that I was there and that nobody could ever tie it to me because they are embarrassing. Nary a dwarf. Nary a dwarf. If anybody out there remembers this movie, it's because it was in the HBO guide and you always thought, man, maybe, maybe I'll watch it. And you never did. You know what it was? It wasn't the HBO guide for me. It was a magazine called Coming Attractions. That They only published that magazine for like a year and a half. I remember in one of the issues, they had a big page, full page article about this, and it was Peter Fonda's trying to reinvent his career. The Easy Rider's back in the saddle. He's up in the air with Deborah Raffin, who's making the jump from TV. I was like, oh, I'm going to see this one day. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know why they call I mean, Jungle Heat is not a great title, but. And Easy Flyer is offensive. Easy Flyer makes me want to hit somebody. Uh, you know what else made me want to hit somebody? <laughs> uh, yeah. This broad madcap farce called Finders Keepers. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Looks like fun. Didn't know I could hold my breath that long, did you? It is fun. Join Michael O'Keefe, Beverly D'Angelo, and Louis Gossett Jr. in Finders Keepers. Rated R starts Friday, May 18th. Check newspapers for theater. From the director of A Hard Day's Night. This is his uh, second to last film, and when we get to Richard Lester's final film, we're going to do a, a full breakdown of both the very good and the very bad. This is more towards the bad. This is pretty bad. Yeah. It's based on a 1974 novel called The Next to Last Train Ride. It seems like it wants to be Silver Streak style, mixed with a little Mad Mad World. I think there's elements of both of those, and there is certainly in the premise of this a not terrible farce idea, which is a con man who's on the run dresses up in a soldier's uniform and attaches himself to a casket that's being shipped home for burial that he says is a fallen soldier. Right. And this is the, <laughs> you think this is a good movie in that. <laughs> well, there could be, I mean, if a farce is you put somebody in an untenable position and then how do they squirm out of it or not? A good farce can really turn the screws with a character who's a con man who your con corners you, you end up conning yourself into a corner. How do you get out of it? It's possible but not with this particular combination of things. Beverly D'Angelo, who has a almost unnerving fondness for the word f***ing and f***ing in this movie, is upsetting in her performance. And it's the way she's written. The character she's been handed to play here is horrible. Literally half of what she says, you're like, that's offensive. That's not charming. That's not funny, not, not charming, not... And Michael O'Keefe, who, you know, has been fine in supporting roles, uh, apparently his agent convinced somebody that he was to carry a film as the lead. No. The supporting cast is far and away the only reason to watch this movie. We have Lou Gossett Jr., Ed Lauder, Brian Dennehy, Pamela Stevenson. There's some funny people in this movie, but boy. Who makes a very early and surprisingly featured appearance in the film? Jim Carrey. I think it's a pretty solid performance from Jim Carrey. It's not like hilarious, but Jim Carrey has probably, I think, the best conceived character, which is he is supposed to be that dead body in that casket. And it's just a name that Michael O'Keefe picked off a piece of paper, not realizing there's a whole scam involving Carrey's character where he went AWOL and his family's lying for him and they're going to try and smuggle him out to Canada or South America. 
And so Carrie is literally a dead man who is just hiding out at someone's house. And that's one of the few elements I kind of thought they almost got right. Have you ever seen a comedy in which you hate the two leads but and you're constantly waiting for the supporting cast to interrupt them? That's what this is like. CBS theatrical films uh, who made this, they were massive losers. Almost everything they touched during the very brief time they were in business was garbage. And this is a perfect example of the kind of thing where it had gone through nine different companies. Everybody had tried to develop it. It had gone through different stars and different directors. It was almost a Dudley Moore film at one point. And it finally just ended up at the last place that would take it. And I feel like there were companies that existed simply to make the movies everybody else had almost made and then go out of business. And there's a reason for that. All right. Time for the big one. Yeah, a controversial film. Controversial because, A, it was a big hit. It was the directorial debut of someone we admire. Drew, let us dig into the good, the bad, and the ugly of John Hughes. 16 Candles, a movie about creeps. Score a direct hit. Hunks. Popes. Parties. This is everybody. Bodies. Geeks. Clicks. Yes, I'm back. So I smell. And all the terrifying things. Can I borrow your underpants for 10 minutes? That make life worth living. Classic. 16 Candles. This is getting good. Rated PG. Special sneak preview Friday and Saturday night. Check newspaper for theater information. It's so funny to me that this is now a controversial film. Deservedly. But it's strange because for so long, this was just beloved. It was just one of those movies that if you saw it at the right age, you loved this movie and you carried it around with you. It was a huge, important movie for a lot of young people who saw it at the right point. That doesn't excuse anything, and it doesn't wash it away, and I'm not going to do that. But generationally, this was an important film, and it wasn't until later that all that began as a conversation. Let's start by talking about the very best stuff, the positive side. I think that's the majority of the film. I also think there's a lot of very honest stuff in this movie. And John Hughes wrote from a very weird, impulsive place. He wrote very notoriously fast scripts. He would write them in you know a week, 10 days, less than that sometimes, and rarely went back. So I think a lot of what he did was intuitive. And there's great stuff in his movies. There's really brilliant character beats in his movies. There's stuff in his movies that I guarantee he had thought about for one more hour he would not have included in the final thing. But I think it's revealing. I think he has definitely some issues with how he wrote Young Women. I think there are moments where he gets them so right that it's the reason these films have a lasting power because people saw moments of them where they go, holy shit, that's me. Holy shit, that's exactly how True. I, I grew up loving this movie. If I were to say, I, I this is playing mostly devil's advocate here, but if I were to tell you, that I thought John Hughes was trying to make Animal House Jr. and put a story of a sweet teenage girl in front as kind of a decoy. That's how the film plays to me now. All right, Molly Ringwald is amazing in this movie as she bounces off her various kooky family members who are doing really lame sitcom spiel. She bounces off all these broadly written imbeciles and she has a real honesty and truth and warmth she's never terrible in this movie you empathize with her even if she is tiny bit spoiled here and there you empathize with her throughout all of this but i think almost everything else in this movie is animal house jr i i don't really see john hughes that way his movies are about how it felt to be at a certain age what 16 candles gets most right 
is the feeling of certain things. And I think that's true of Sam. And even though I think the writing of Ted is not terrific all the way through, I think Anthony Michael Hall was so unbelievably confident and good here. Agreed on both counts. I think 80% of what he's given to do is either silly or ugly, but his performance, his energy, his presence, his eyes, his body language is fantastic. He is excellent. I totally agree. for the most part, it's silly. I really do. I think he is a kid who has zero idea how to approach this girl. And he is taking his cues from all the wrong places. He's taking terrible cues. That's really what the joke is, is that Ted is an idiot who doesn't know how to be very direct and honest and simply say, I like you and I'm interested in you. Now, was he writing it at an age where rape culture was at its highest point and accepted and there were behaviors that are monstrous that were simply seen as a joke or nothing big? He approaches Sam probably six or seven times. I'm watching this in 2018 thinking after like two tries, brother, walk away. But on the other hand... In the 80s, anybody, including adults in the room and kids, nobody really thought of that as wrong, straight up wrong. It was annoying. It was uh, nerdy. It was, you know, playful. I don't but- know. I think, I think there's three big moments in this movie that are a problem. And I think there's one character in the movie that's indefensible, and it's Long Duck Dong. I think Getty Watanabe, and here's again where I'm torn in something. I think Getty Watanabe is a delightful performer. I really love Getty Watanabe, and he makes me laugh. There's a moment in the movie where he just smiles at someone, and I'm like, that's the actor that we've grown to love, because you've seen Getty Watanabe in countless things, and he's a great actor. And even given the horrible, broadly caricatured, ugly shit he's asked to do in this movie, his performance is strong. That's kind of the the problem with something like this, is that I really do like watching him, and every scene that he has with uh, Deborah Pollack, they're hilarious together. And I don't see really the John Hughes stuff as sitcom. I see them as that's how it feels when your grandparents are talking to you, your parents are talking to you. They're embarrassing to the point where you want to die. Yeah, but they have scenes where she's not even involved. Like when when the hunk calls late at night and she does, they go on this whole shtick about how she thinks it's a prank call. And it's just like it feels like it's all of a piece with the John Hughes sensibility to me. That's that's the same sense of humor that is in every John Hughes movie. The movie is about Samantha. And then at the party. The movie seems to realize, hey, Anthony Michael Hall is funny. Forget that girl. Let's follow him. And she's out of the movie for large chunks. That's not acceptable. It's a movie about her. I think it's got a twin protagonist. And I think part of what's important about what Ted ends up doing is that Ted ends up telling Jake the truth about Sam. And it's by watching the way everybody at that party behaves and by watching the way Ted behaves and by watching what Ted gets from trying to emulate him, that Jake realizes what he wants in Sam. That is part of him eventually showing up for her. You may not see Sam on screen for part of the film, but I don't think there's ever a point in the film where the things that are happening are not ultimately about getting Sam in that room with Jake Ryan at the end. Now, here's my biggest problem with the movie. Jake Ryan's a zero. Almost every other teenager in this movie is written like a mad magazine close-up caricature covered with zits. They're wearing jock straps on their head. Joan Cusack in her in her back brace. Why is that funny? See, I disagree with you. I think Joan Cusack is great in the movie. She can't drink the water fountain because she's wearing a back brace. That is low-hanging fruit, sir. I don't know, man. I think it's more about the feeling of being that person who can't get the drink at the water fountain. And that to me is the difference is I feel like John Hughes movies are about the feeling of being that person. 
I, I, if she was half a character, then I would agree with you. But this is shot with a lot of disdain for teenagers. It is not warm and, uh, and, and affectionate towards teenagers. It is ugly. I, I disagree. I think it is in the broad comedy character that is common to almost every Hughes film. Dude, look at all the party stuff. People falling out of trees and the barbell goes through He's the always floor. Done a combination of high and low comedy. Vacation has this balance of stuff. He's always got a mix of high and low comedy. I don't think John Hughes has ever been a particularly highbrow filmmaker, nor is he afraid of an easy gag. I think what makes him interesting is the fact that he knows this world. He is white suburbia incarnate, and I think he is roasting the world that he knows. The, the movie gets away from Samantha so far, and, and you think that, and, and your argument, and which is a, certainly a valid one, is that it eventually all trickles back to her story, which is fine. There is a long, endless scene in which the hunk she admires and Anthony Michael Hall kind of bond, and it is endless. It is so awful. And then it ends with what we're going to get into now, the idea of him just handing off his girlfriend as a piece of meat to a nerd. And that's indefensible. But Drew, I'm asking you, did we think, haha, that blonde girl deserved it? Did we think that's a dark joke? Or did we think, oh, that's kind of sweet? No, and it's because Hughes tries to have it both ways. There is, and I'm not defending the scene. From the moment she blacks out the first time, she should be off limits 100% for anybody, her boyfriend or anyone. The movie tries to have it both ways. The movie tries to write it so that when they wake up in the morning and he says, did you enjoy it? Yeah, did I? I think so. And they're they're okay. They all know what happened, so it's all okay. Hughes wants it to be okay. And I think there's some sense in the way he writes this that he knows that the handing off of her is fundamentally incorrect. There is something wrong. With this is something I just noticed as a film fan. Both of the very pretty, quote unquote, unattainable blonde girls in this movie are awfully written. Uh, I don't get it. Well, I, I have a theory about that, and I don't think it's a controversial theory. I think a lot of guys who make films take revenge out in small ways on the characters that they write and and address petty grievances and redress things that they didn't get to do in their life. Or When we talk about the slobs versus the snobs formula, part of the reason that got written so many times and part of the reasons guys went back to it and part of the reasons we're going to see other examples of it later this year, like Revenge of the Nerds, is because the people making these movies, to some degree, are redressing their past wrongs. And when they get to make this movie, they are... No doubt working out some shit. There's no question that these are revealing films. That the movies of John Hughes, his attitudes about the characters in his films, there are certain types of characters that repeatedly take it in the face in his films. He'll go back to it over and over. I think the longer you watch his films, the more aware of it you are. And you're right. I do think he hates the blonde girl in this movie. And I think he writes her as a piece of shit. The way she treats her boyfriend's house and the way she treats him and the way she she is written as an awful human being and 100% doesn't deserve anything that happens to her in this film. The counterpoint is, while I don't find it a very funny film, I find it very kind of uh, witless. Everything about Sam, I love everything about her. I just wish she was in a slightly better movie. The movie only, I mean, John Hughes could barely find anything for Paul Dooley to do, for Christ's sake. He has one good scene, Drew. See, I think I think his sister has a couple of great scenes. I think there's a lot of the wedding that's funny. Good call. Good call. Blanche Baker when she is on her muscle relaxants. She's hilarious. That whole sequence of the church is very funny. And I think her family's reactions are funny there. I think, I think Dooley, as the long-suffering dad, does get off a couple of good beats. 
Now, her little brother, Sam's little brother, do you know who that is? Oscar nominee for Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, and this is it. This is the only other thing, and he's awesome. He he murders in every scene. No, he's not. I'm glad you think so, because I fucking hate... Oh, the performance is fine. I hate the character. Ugh, he's holding up her pant. He's holding up her panties. That's not funny. Ugh, he fell out of a tree. That's not funny. Oh, the weights went through the floor. That's like Animal House. I also think there's a sliding scale here, and I think after sitting through the last two years worth of sex comedies since Porky's came out. What 16 Candles represents is something that is based in a reality. I do think it's an evolution, and I feel like there is a raunch to this that is still, I mean, it's part of John Hughes's vocabulary. You got to remember, he came from National Lampoon, where it was as filthy as filthy could be. And a lot of the magazine stuff pushed boundaries we would consider so off. Yeah, and how they today. got away with the PG on this is a freaking joke. We're still a few months out from the breaking point, but this is part of that breaking point just as much as Temple of Doom. So. It was not a movie that was well-received by parents. So if you watch 16 Candles and you'd never seen it, and you think, well, gee, in 1984 even, this should have been an R, you're right. It should have been. Um, This next one, Scott, I had a weird relationship with as a kid. I tried this thing over and over, determined to like it, took many, many years off, and finally went back to it this week. Uh, Let's talk about The Natural. You really are a riddle, aren't you? What are you trying to hide anyways? No one knew who he was. What do you know about this guy, Max? Not very much. Where he came from. We're not kids anymore. Nothing's ever the same. Or what he was after. I don't have any secrets. Maybe, but I do. But they knew he was the best that ever was. Best there is now, best there ever will be. Robert Redford, The Natural. I have always loved this movie, Drew. Aside from Eight Men Out, this is my favorite baseball movie ever. And it's because it approaches baseball in kind of a mythological way. It's got, like, of course, the period design. It's got the the costumes and that awesome Randy Newman score. And it just, everything looks so authentic, all shot in old school Buffalo uh, stadiums. By the amazing Caleb Deschanel. Shot in Buffalo, New York, I should say. I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I think it's a beautiful movie. Um, I agree with you about the Randy Newman score. I think you, any conversation about this movie should begin with Randy Newman's score, which might be an all-timer. I think for Randy Newman, this was a real defining moment. He had done the ragtime score, which was more of a, a like a novelty score where he had to reproduce an old sound, or he would do this single, like a one song. I had read the book before this came out, and the book is very different, and the book it plays with myth as well, and the book very much leans into sort of the Arthurian legend and and has a very downbeat ending. The book does not end this way. So my first encounter with the movie was I sat through the whole thing pinned to my chair by how gorgeous it was. And then they fucked the ending up. And over time, I have let go of the book 
and let go of my feelings about it. some of the little things, like how ridiculous the opening of the movie is where Robert Redford's meant to be like 15 or 16 years old, and the only thing they can do is shoot him from a mile away. Try, try like, I'm sorry, that. you couldn't but, find a little blonde boy? Come on, people. I mean, good Lord. I could throw a rock and hit a kid who looks like Robert Redford. And in- I, I think they could have done the whole opening sequence with a young guy, all the way up through the gunshot. I'd never read the book. Uh, while I could see where the arc of the story would take it to a downbeat ending, especially considering some very key shots before the big finale. I I think the movie kind of earns the ending. Have we even covered what it's about? The natural is very simple story about a, a rookie who is much older than he should be. And we have to figure out, Hey, why is this rookie so old? And then we start to dig back into his backstory and he had a, Oh, a scandalous tragedy. There's a backstory involving a femme fatale in a hotel room, Barbara Hershey. It goes to some very interesting places. And to me, the beauty of this movie, aside from the phenomenal screenplay, Michael Madsen, Darren McGavin, Joe Don Baker, Robert Prosky, Richard Farnsworth, Wilfred Brimley, Kim Basinger, Barbara Hershey, Glenn Close, Robert Duvall. Are you kidding me? This movie is like a heaven. And what I've eventually embraced about it, what I, watching it this time especially really stood out to me is um, a lot of sports movies, they're just trying to make it look cool or they're trying to find some new way to shoot it, but it's not really about communicating anything about the way it feels to play a sport. I think the natural, there is a a real reverence for every element of being the person on the field and being in the bullpen and the tactile feeling of being on the field. And when he hits that home run... Every time even the littlest kid hits a ball, that's how they feel. Is it corny? Is it on the nose? Is it Hallmark card? Sure, sure. But if you like baseball even a little bit, or you just like the mythology of heroes, it's beautiful. It is. It might be corny, but Barry Levinson made the most beautiful home run in film history. Let's discuss real quickly, Drew, how this was Levinson's second directorial work. He and Deschanel and the production designer on this, you had to find as many real locations and as many old, old, old style stadiums and that kind of thing as you could. And you had to fill them. And more than that, there's a romantic Norman Rockwell sheen to this movie that Deschanel creates in every scene of it that works to the sort of mythological underpinnings. If you're trying to make an Arthurian baseball movie, complete with a Magical weapon born in fire. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. You really do. You need to make it this kind of, this level of beautiful. You couldn't have shot the movie any other way and had it land the mythological side. I understand why baseball players love this so much. I don't think there's very many realistic game moments in the movie. Everything from the very first pitching to the very last hit, it's all heightened and ridiculous. But if you love baseball, this has to feel like... The warmest of warm baths. It was the first film produced by TriStar Pictures. It was Robert Redford's first acting gig in four years. Let us move on now. Drew, that last movie had one wild, crazy ensemble. Let's jump over to another film with an equally epic ensemble. Anthony Hopkins, Mel Gibson, Daniel Day-Lewis, Liam Neeson, Edward Fox, Bernard Hill, and Sir Laurence Olivier in... Breakin'. Oh, wait. No, I'm sorry. Uh, The Bounty. At 22, his bravery led to success. 
His youth led to seduction. Think, could you take a woman like that back home to your friends, back home to your family? No, of course you couldn't. His passion led to rebellion. Don't mean no killing. Mel Gibson, Anthony Hopkins, Lawrence Olivier, The Bounty, rated PG. Starts Friday, May 4th at theaters everywhere. Did not see this film in theaters in 84. Could not have been forced into the theater because I've just, I felt like it was one of those things, it's already been done, who cares? I didn't go. I got sent the Blu-ray a few years ago. Never watched it. So my introductory viewing of The Bounty was for this podcast. And my first reaction to it is, if we're going to talk about ratings controversies, I think the MPAA was wildly, spectacularly racist. If you had this many bare, white breasts in any movie, it would have been rated R. Period. If you had shown them in this context, this way, and they were just young white American women, there's no way this movie comes out as anything less than an R. And it's the kind of thing where people are seen as lesser yeah, uh, and it's funny, you and I are going to discuss very soon how Temple of Doom and Gremlins pretty much invented the PG-13, but I think it's worth footnoting that films like 16 Candles and The Bounty almost certainly had an effect on that. I, I just want that stated for the record, gavel. I think you're onto something. There was a overall break that had happened with the MPA where it just wasn't working. Now, this is by Robert Bolt. Robert Bolt, of course, wrote Lawrence of Arabia, my favorite movie. When his name came up in the credits and I realized he was the screenwriter, I'm like, ooh, maybe I'm going to have a really great experience. And I do think he found his own way into the story of the bounty. I don't think it was a terribly interesting way into it, though. Right. It is a gorgeous movie to look at. It is an early uh, second feature, I believe, by Roger Donaldson. And it was because David Lean dropped out to work on something else we'll discuss in several episodes. So Roger Donaldson was hired at the behest of his pal Mel Gibson. This is, in many ways, a perfunctory retelling of the Mutiny on the Bounty story about Bly and Fletcher. The look of the film is so striking. Uh, high seas adventure, it, it's passable. Uh, it's worth watching mainly for the aforementioned ensemble cast, which is fantastic. One of the things that struck me watching this movie, at the very beginning, they, they put the mission of the bounty together, and it's to go collect breadfruit. And that's it, so that they can be planted in the slave plantations in the Caribbean because it's cheaper to feed the slaves that than what they're feeding them. What struck me as they were going through all the setup is we're always used to these seafaring stories being framed as giant adventures. And you referred to it as a seafaring adventure. They're truckers. They're just grocers. There's nothing really adventurous about this. And that's part of what I think is interesting, Robert Bolt's script, is the sailors know that. The officers have it in their head that this is glory and adventure. No, you're going and you're getting some fruit and you're delivering it. And that's it. So when they do finally get to Tahiti, what I think is interesting and what I think Donaldson does so well is the moment they arrive in Tahiti, Tahiti is paradise. And he really sells that more than any other version. And this is where that weird PGR boundary gets a little blurry because the land is beautiful. Everybody's naked. Everything is very loose and fun. And it's and that section of the film is probably the most successful in terms of communicating what it wants to, which is it's very seductive and it's very easy to just get lost there. And then Hopkins, because of jealousy more than anything, demands that everybody snap back into shape. And then the movie builds towards the eventual mutiny. And for some of them, I never would have gotten back on the boat. And good luck trying to make me, you know? That It does that well. What I like about the movie is that it 
starts out explaining how these two guys were friends first. It's told in a flashback structure where Hopkins, as Bly, is uh, in a court and he's telling the story about how the mutiny went down. And obviously Bly had a superiority complex, even to his friends, and that was always going to be the case. So I like that it does that. It does slow the film down and make it more of a drama than than the aforementioned adventure, but I'm still into it. I don't think Mel Gibson is particularly good in this case. Yeah, he's, he's still kind of a lightweight at this point. Because Fletcher Christian is somewhat unknowable, he vanished, he was never brought to justice, he never had to really offer up his side of the story and he never got to offer up his side of the story. So Fletcher remains kind of at a distance and is unknowable. And that's a hard thing to play. So Gibson gets some good material when he's with a girl or when he has private moments or he's allowed to be human. He isn't ferocious enough to stand up to Hopkins who he was trying to rebuild his career at this point. He had sort of come through the other end of the terrible alcoholic years and was trying to prove that he could carry the weight of these movies again. Anthony Hopkins is eating every inch of the screen and every scene in this movie. And God bless him, man. I like this movie. And even if I didn't, I would say it's worth watching just for the entirety of Anthony Hopkins performance. It's just fun to watch him speak. Even in something that's a little dry, he livens it up with just like the crackle of his voice. He's wonderful. Now, Speaking of adaptations of popular fiction, blam! Charlie McGee is an ordinary child, normal in every way. Charlie, now watch what you're doing. But one, she can set things on fire with just a glance. Daddy, I'm scared. But there are those who will do everything to control her and maybe destroy her. Charlie McGee is Stephen King's fire starter. Will she have the power to survive? Rated R. We talked about the streak of how the first several Stephen King movies were fantastic. Then it kind of hit a thump with Children of the Corn. And now while Children of the Corn was a relatively small film, this was a relatively big budget film. Probably cost, what, $15 million or something. Dana De Laurentiis produced it and they expected big things from Firestarter. And it was generally met with a big fat meh. Carpenter was hired to do this, and he hired Bill Lancaster, the guy who wrote The Thing, to adapt the novel. And then months later, uh, Universal fired him because The Thing had not done well, and they got cold feet. When we talk about how disappointing the summer of 82 was for him, it cost him a lot. And there was a lot of stuff he had set up around town. It wasn't just this movie. It was several things evaporated. On one hand, had Universal stuck to their guns, that he would have made a movie that had done at least as well as this one. But on the other hand, if he had gotten to do Firestarter, then he we would have never gotten Christine. It's about two hours long. If you start the movie at an hour 41, which is exactly when Drew Barrymore starts to lose her shit and literally destroys an entire small village. So much time and effort and energy went into that sequence, and it's so well cut. The score is fantastic. Everything about that sequence is Great. And it feels like 90% of the time and effort in the film went into the finale and very little effort went into the first hour and 40 minutes. By this point in the 80s, we were almost at the end of the cycle of the government's out to get us, man. And we, we got run from the government, man. And then the army's going to kill you, man. And the CIA, dude. Here's a way to open your movie. David Keith and Heather Locklear 
making moony eyes at each other, strapped to gurneys, and they're about to get scientific experiments. Eventually, they hook up and have a baby girl who has pyrokinetic powers, which means, blam, she can throw fireballs. Blam, she can make water boil. Blam, she can turn faucets with her mind. Wow. This must have seemed like a no-brainer to Universal because not only did they have a novel by the wildly hot, pun intended, Stephen King, but they could also have access to the wonderful young actress named Drew Barrymore, just coming off E.T., who is perfect age for this character. This is the beginning of when King was starting to repeat himself because this is, uh, to some degree, this is Carrie. But it's more like The Fury, which was the kind of crappy Carrie ripoff to Palma did. It has a lot of elements from other King stuff that we'd already seen by this point, including the casting of Martin Sheen as the sort of shitty government bad guy. Martin Sheen sleepwalks through this movie, except for one scene at the end where he like yells at a bunch of TV screens and he's like, he's (laughs) happier than I've ever seen Martin Sheen. It's bizarre. Can we talk about George C. Scott? In the novel, the character is a Native American assassin. For some reason, De Laurentiis decided that he was going to hire George C. Scott for this role. And instead of maybe just rewriting it as a white man, nope, it is ugly. His performance is gross and irritating. Yeah, it's a it's a crazy performance. And I just the other day I was reading a Fangoria from before it came out and they were talking Stephen King. There was a quote that I I tweeted out of his where he's like, yeah, I didn't think it was going to work. But then I saw him with the tanning makeup on and man, it's good. You're like, oh, wow. Wow. That was a different age. Many years later, he called this the worst of his film adaptations and called it, quote, cafeteria mashed potatoes. There is just something goofy about the way Mark Lester stages her, where the fan starts blowing on her. Why does her hair start flowing every time she wants to make fire? So goofy. No, the the early scene, David Keith is on the run with his daughter uh, from government agents, or should I say, balding white stuntmen who are terrible actors and then get set on fire on camera. Um <laughs> Drew, give me an impression of the guy who shoots at Drew Barrymore. He shoots at her. What happens? It's awesome, dude. Every henchman died like 14. There's a henchman later that get hits with a fireball. Then there's a quick, quick edit. The guy's body catapults into a tree and it is gorgeous. It is no bullshit. The fireballs are crazy. The fireballs are one of the weirdest things Lester does in the movie. I am not being facetious. If you are going to praise stuntmen and pyrotechnic engineers and stunt coordinators, that sequence, not so much the earlier sequence with Art Carney and, and Louise Fletcher, which is done in broad daylight and is very a little more static and a little drier. But the, the one thing I laugh my ass off, eventually, Charlie, the young girl, is captured by the shop and she is forced to endure tests. She is tasked with setting a wall of cinder blocks on fire. And she it's a good effect. She sets the cinder blocks on fire and, it, you know, it, we, we all get it. Wow, the power of this young girl. The blocks are starting to burn. Martin Sheen just says, Center blocks. <laughs> it <Yeah>. killed me. <laughs> I dare you to watch Firestarter and drink a shot of bourbon every time Drew Barrymore says, Back off. <laughs> Don't kill our listeners. We need them. All right. Okay, uh, if you want a drinking game for our next film, I've got one that I'll propose after we uh, talk about it a little bit because I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's time for Breaking. 
comes the movie that's fresh and hot with high energy. Dancing to the beat with a scratch mix sound that comes from the street. This movie is unique. Don't be mistaken, you've got to see Breaking. Breaking, rated PG, starts Friday, May 4th. Check local listings. Well, we mentioned this when we covered Wild Style. It would not take long for the Canon Group and other companies to realize that hip-hop was a going to be a huge market. So on one hand, while you could be like, well, you kind of wish these movies had been a little bit better, on the other hand, you can almost thank them because rushing them out has made them feel like kind of like an honest relic of a moment. They are time capsules, no doubt. Ice tea. Random Van Damme appearance? Christopher McDonald's perm. Fancy white girl dancer befriends two breakdancing fools and helps them take it to the next level, yo. Silberg is one of Golan Globus's Israeli pals, not well-directed. He would also go on to direct Rappin', Bad Guys, and Lombada. Oh boy, we got a lot of ground to cover this decade, don't we still? The plot is completely nominal and meaningless and a very thin framework on which to hang in this film, uh, other films we'll get to later, the rap is really great. In this, it's mainly the dancing. Yeah, this is way more dance-oriented. And boy, there is some footage here that is unreal. The cutting of this, it kind of works against some of the shooting. I think the way this film is shot, they did a pretty good job shooting the breakdancing, which they were still trying to figure out how to shoot it right You know, at this point. What was the language of it? Because there's the language of dance films. But breakdancing is different. Breakdancing looks different. There's different things you want to emphasize and show. And I think the big lesson from this movie is the further back you are and the more you show the whole person, the better it works. There's a lot of weird close-ups in this where they're trying to shoot it like you would shoot a Gene Kelly dance scene, and they haven't figured it out yet. There is a, a central dance number with a young man named Michael Chambers where he's dancing with a push broom. Okay, and, I, and this kind of speaks to what you're talking about. And most of it is wonderful. And it's moments like that where when the movie is emphasizing the dance, it's doing what it's supposed to do, which is it's an exploitation film for, for a new dance form. And it's at its loosest and it's most fun when it looks like they just kind of set up a camera and the cast just kind of does what they're doing, including the scene that you referenced, which is for those of us who didn't know it was in there, and I, I guess it's a meme that has gotten out and people realized it, but I didn't realize Jean-Claude Van Damme makes his film debut here in the background of one of the scenes. And it's set at Muscle Beach and they're all kind of dancing in a circle and you've got Van Damme at the edge of the dance circle bopping out like everybody else and clapping his hands and stuff. It's... It's a crazy moment if you don't know it's coming. I love that these films exist. If you wanted to watch it as a story, yeah, they, they don't hold together. The dialogue is often terrible. I almost wish that, you know, Breaking and Breaking 2 had been more just documentary style. I don't know why they felt beholden to a, a narrative structure. Christopher McDonald shows up in the film, uh, and like you mentioned, as the, the crazy perm. And I like the choice where, from the beginning, once he sees these guys dance, he's on their side. He has their back, even when they go to a party and somebody shits on them for coming from the streets. And he's a really decent, which is funny because McDonald made such a great career on playing jerks and wieners. But and that's also the way for the, the white guys to write in like, hey, we're not all, sne you know, not all of us are awful. But it's just nice to see him not play a jerk. Oh, everything. yeah, no, because it's Christopher McDonald. You expect him to screw them over immediately. And the fact that he turns out to be on their side, you're like, what? Cool. Uh, I like Breakin'. I like Breakin' 2 even better, but we'll get to that in December because Breakin' is the only f American film in history to have a sequel released in the same year. Although not the quickest time between two sequels, we'll deal with that in the next year as well. 
All right. Okay. So we're done. That's it. That's all the films for month. No other films came out in May of 1984. So thanks, everybody. And... Oh, is it time? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. He makes discoveries. Enemies. Even a few mistakes. But that's what makes life interesting. Hi. For Indiana Jones. Harrison Ford. Oh, Indy. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Rated PG. I'm so excited. You and I have had conversations about this movie on and off for years. And we actually saw this film theatrically together uh, because of a friend's birthday. I don't want to put you in the position of feeling like you are anti-Temple of Doom because you're not. But I think you and I land different places on where it lands in the overall indie pantheon and for Spielberg as a filmmaker. I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is just about as close to a perfect film as you can get. You know, it's it's not fair to compare, and even if it's the same director, same producers, I think this movie makes a lot of really bad choices. When it is dealing with Indiana Jones himself and the action, it's a classic. There's very few films that can touch the spectacle and the choreography and the set pieces of this movie, the fights, the chases, the you know, all that stuff is some of the best action I've ever seen. When the action is not happening, it's alternately a dull and ugly movie. I think that's a fair assessment. I will counter by saying that I think this is a more honest reflection of the pulp roots of Indiana Jones than Raiders is. I think Raiders is a better movie. I think Raiders is, as you put it, a perfect movie. I love Raiders. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is fascinating because I think it may be one of the more revealing and personal movies Steven Spielberg ever made accidentally. I don't think it started that way. I think it ended up becoming that. And I also think it is a very honest reflection of its pulp roots. Pulp depended on a lot of crazy stereotypes about the world. There was the Western world we knew, and then there was the rest of the world that was crazy and exotic and anything could happen and magic and sacrifices and monsters and and that's the way they saw things. And I think there was a, in particular, there was a fascination with India that we didn't inherit. It really wasn't our generation's thing. But because of stuff like Gunga Din and because of sort of the pop culture for the the generation that made Temple of Doom, I think this is their reflection back on those things that they grew up on as they remembered it. And it's filtered through the nightmares they had as kids after they saw this stuff. It's all the fears they had when they heard these stories. It's not based in reality. That's for sure. That is not the way India really is, but it is the way the Pope world represented India. And I do think that's what they're doing. I think they're making a movie about that. I think that's giving screenwriters, Gloria Katz and Willard Hike, perhaps a bit more credit than they deserve. I think that the marching orders were, let's try and make this a little darker. So to me, it feels like a kid told a great joke. And then the kid tried to push it and get a little dirty. And that joke didn't go over quite as well. It feels like 
They said, let's let's make it a little rougher, a little tougher, but instead just made it a bit uglier. Now, this is interesting because we're not. this is not a 16-candle situation in which I'm applying 2018 perspectives to a 1984 film. In 1984, I thought, why am I, I don't like that he's whipping children. I didn't like that. I thought it was mean and ugly. That wasn't what I was hoping for from a Raiders of the Lost Ark sequel. I cannot stand Willie Scott. I cannot stand her. Don't tell me she's supposed to be a parody of the Wailing Damsel. If she's supposed to be a parody, she's playing it exactly to the nth degree. Every time she's on screen, I just want her to go away. I don't think she's a parody, but I do think she is the opposite of Marion Ravenwood. And I think that's 100% by design. I think they knew that if they tried to simply replace Marion, it would be less successful. And he doesn't end up with Willie Scott. We know that because she's gone by Raiders of the Lost Ark. I don't care if he ends up with her or not. I have to spend two hours with her. I get it. I think she's meant to be annoying. I don't think, and I don't think it's a parody. I just think she's meant to be annoying. She's the last person you want to have on your adventure. She's the last person who's prepared to have your adventure. And at every point, she is a hindrance to your adventure. But if I stick a pencil in your ear for two hours and you say that's annoying and I say, well, it was supposed to be annoying. It's like, do I have to deal with this ugliness and this garish racial stereotypes? Do I have to deal with this woman shrieking in my ear and being like the most facile idiot possible? Willie is a fucking pain in the ass and Willie does everything wrong. Every choice Willie makes the, is The wrong. sequence when he comes into her room and is looking for the booby trap and puts his hand over the statue's boobies and he, she says, I'm right here. Or when she says, boy, this Nerhachi is a small guy. Is she supposed to be like drunk? Okay, you're you're literally listing things I like. So I, we're obviously just diametrically opposed because I do think that sequence in the bedroom is very funny and I think it's perfectly staged. You know, I my first response to this was I was a little irritated by Short Round the first time around. I didn't think Indy needed a kid. There was a conscious decision that they were not going to make the same adventure the next time. And I do think that there is Something that happens in this movie that doesn't happen in Raiders, which is we actually see a change in Indiana Jones in this movie. As a character, he goes from being utterly self-motivated at the beginning of this film to somebody that does something heroic at the end of this that has nothing to do with his game. I'll give you that. The, the, the banter between Indy and Short Round early in the film I like very much. They do have a good chemistry when they're playing cards and like the implication that he helped the kid and there he's loyal to him like that. All that stuff works. I, I like that. But I didn't like short round at the beginning. I found him annoying at the beginning of the film. What I eventually ended up really liking and what I like more as I get older is I like that it is short round who ultimately turns Indy around and their relationship in this movie is so good. And that moment where it is the plaintive plea to Indy's human nature that brings him out of this death cult Kali hypnosis, I think is a very powerful moment and one of Harrison Ford's best acted moments. He's good in this. I Yep, he knows to play it more intense. He knows to play it a little tougher, yeah. And I get it. It's it's definitely a darker and, and uglier film in a lot of ways, but it's meant to be. The, the death cult of Kali is, it's the temple of doom. That's the title of the movie. Ultimately, the conversation about this film, what is interesting, when this was made, There were so many things going on behind the scenes that I think bleed through into the tone of this movie that the ugliness you're talking about isn't completely a matter of, I just don't like what I'm looking at on the film. These were some unhappy dudes making this movie. You got to remember, Spielberg's going through a wicked divorce at this point. 
You've got to remember that George Lucas is going through a wicked divorce at this point. You've got to remember the Twilight Zone accident just happened, and Frank Marshall literally can't go back to the United States, and Spielberg's not too sure he can either. This is a moment where these guys, for the first time since they were anointed as the new Hollywood gods, suddenly found themselves in a totally different place than they thought they were just two years earlier. They were on top of the world, and suddenly they're getting kicked in the nuts nonstop. So the darkness in this film, Spielberg has even talked about this, that he looks at this movie now and has trouble looking at it because everything else is what he sees. And Lucas is a little bit the same way, and they've, they've apologized to some degree for this film. I don't think they're apologizing for the movie. I think they're apologizing because so much of what they were feeling is in this movie. Your thoughts on the, uh, it was controversial at the time, the monkey brains, the whole sequence. What's your, what's your thoughts? My theory is that every genre filmmaker in town had seen Faces of Death by that point. I truly, in my heart, believe that image is influenced by Faces of Death. Not accidentally. I think that that tape was floating around. Everybody had seen it. And I think there was a notion of, wouldn't this be crazy if they were at dinner and just worse and worse stuff kept coming out? And I think that scene gets as far away from them as anything in the movie. It's probably my least favorite beat in the film. That whole thing. We do want to include our good friend and correspondent, longtime film writer, Eric Vespi, who is a desperately passionate fan of this the movie. Biggest fan of the film. And we promised him that he could inv- insert his two cents. So over to you, Eric. Hi, it's Eric Vespi. I am very grateful to be here to talk about one of my all time favorite movies, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. There's something about it that always stuck with me, and it took me years and years and years of analyzing the movie and asking myself, why is this my favorite? I recognize Raiders is the best, but Temple of Doom was always the one that I would go back to, and I was asking myself why, and I think I figured it out. I narrowed it down to two things. One, I love the fact that Spielberg and Lucas decided to go in the exact opposite way, to give you something you weren't expecting. That's one of the reasons why I really like Last Crusade, but it's not at the same level for me because it feels like they were chasing Raiders with that movie. And Temple of Doom, they are absolutely not. They are going aesthetically in the complete opposite direction. Marion is the exact opposite of Willie. Short Round is not Sala. Even as a kid, I really appreciated that. And I appreciate that even more as an adult, that they were trying to give us something different. They were trying to continue that pulp storytelling and giving it a different light. You know, I've also always been a big horror movie fan. So the fact that, you know, it's Indiana Jones in a horror setting always worked for me. But the the other aspect of it that I really kind of grabbed onto when I started examining it closely was that you know, the movie's a prequel. It's kind of a stealthy prequel. They don't make a big deal about it, but that suddenly clicked something into place for me, and that's when we meet Indy at the beginning of this movie, he is Belloc. He opens the movie, not only does he straight up kill fools, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he skewers a dude, but he is there to exchange an artifact for a diamond. Fortune and glory is uh, something that's said multiple times throughout the movie. That's what he's pursuing. When he's pursuing the mystical rocks, the Sankara stones, he is not doing that for the benefit of the village. It's because it's fortune and glory. He gets the recognition for it. And so when you look at it that way, this is the movie where Indiana Jones becomes Indiana Jones. And that is the thing that took me from like guiltily loving the movie to unapologetically loving the movie. Because I love that you see 
him go from Belloc to Indy. There's a very specific scene where that happens, and I make note of it every time I watch it. And that's the scene where he comes out of the the dark sleep. He saves Willie. He saves Short Round. And then they're like, all right, let's get out of here. He has everything he wants. He has the stones. He has everything. But there's still the slave children down there. Indy, now let's get out of here. Right. All of us. That, to me, is the moment he becomes Indiana Jones. To me, that's the birth of the Indiana Jones character that I love. Uh, You know, it's a silly movie, but it's also Spielberg kind of at the height of his craft. And so for those reasons, I can't ever write off Indiana Jones, and I will fight to my last (laughs) desperate dying breath uh, for this movie. And uh, I hope I have some of you guys in my corner on this one. That guy, man... He's awful. Uh, I love he's, Eric. He's terrible yeah. to everyone. Come on, admit it. Everyone hates Oh, the Eric. meanest. Just Eric, the meanest. The- unpleasant to be around. He doesn't know anything about movies. I think he's seen like four. What I love is that his love of this movie, it's when I started writing film criticism, one of the things that was important to me is there were movies that I had, had hip pocketed since I was a kid that I felt it was important to help renovate their critical standing. Movies like Conan the Barbarian. Where I'm like, I, this was not well liked critically, but God damn it, I'm going to do my part. And I feel like this movie was Eric's project from day one. From when I met him, he wanted more respect for this film. It's fascinating to me, his love for it. I, I totally get if Indiana Jones is your fit. No, I don't. If, if you think Temple of Doom is better than Raiders. Well, I definitely don't think that. But I do think it's better than Crusade. And we'll have that argument in 89, my friend. You think Temple of Doom is better than Last Crusade? Oh, by leaps and bounds. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, That will be an interesting conversation. But that wraps it up for May. (laughs) It does. It wraps it up. And this feels like we're just ramping up. And it's because. Oh, God. I'm punch drunk, Drew. Tell them June. I mean, June is a crater. June is an earth smasher for this show. And you know the big ones. You know gremlins and ghostbusters and the karate mother scratching kid, but there is so much more to next month. There are small and tender foreign films. There's crazy exploitation madness. There is sequels that spin in circles and star vehicles that flame out. We have rock and roll fables, frantically funny comedies, and sprawling gangster epics, as well as crazy parties and hopeless losers. It is Without doubt, the single biggest month we have ever done on the show, and you, my friends, are not ready for June of 1984. Gavel. (laughs) 